Ooh, hello, Valley family. Great to be with you guys today. My name is Pastor Randy. I'm the executive pastor here, and I, I have the privilege today of sharing the, the Word of God with you guys. We are finishing up. We're coming up to the end of our The Blessed Life series that we're doing. It's our Beatitudes uh, series. It's talking about and dealing with like the, the blessed are statements of Jesus that he gives in Matthew chapter 5. You know, like, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth kind of things. Blessed are the peacemakers and the poor in spirit. But today, today, after, after many weeks, we're actually at the last of the Beatitudes. We're at the last of the blessed are statements. And uh, it's a doozy. It's a tough one, man. It is blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. And uh, this morning what we're going to do is we're just going to have to jump right into this a little bit. I want to jump right into it because uh, there's a lot to unpack here and I want to make sure that we have enough time to be able to get to it all. So let's go ahead. We'll pick it up here in Matthew chapter 5 verses 10 to 12, the final of the blessed are, the final of the beatitudes that Jesus gives here. Blessed are those who are persecuted, it says, because of righteousness. Jesus is, is speaking right now. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me. It goes on. Rejoice and be glad. That's an odd response to uh, persecution, right? It's an odd response to being insulted. <laughs> It's an odd response to being accused of things falsely, but it's there. Rejoice and be glad when that happens, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Man, because of me, because of my sake, let's go back to that. Because of me, because of my sake, Blessed are you. Now notice, notice it doesn't say, blessed are you when people insult you because of where you're from. Notice it doesn't say, blessed are you when people insult you because of your political opinions. Although some people might, might wish it said that. It doesn't say, blessed are you when people insult you because of the sports team that you like. Or because of your, your, your favorite musical artist that you like. Or because blessed are you when they insult you because you went into Whole Foods without a mask on and they physically removed you from the place. Blessed are you. It doesn't say any of those things. It says blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And on a serious note, I recognize there's a lot of non-Jesus types of discrimination and persecution even that happen all over the world, all over different cultures today. Persecutions about wars and, and grave injustices and persecutions over race and class and tribal bloodlines and rival political ideologies and stuff. There's persecutions all over the place, and they're terrible, and I'm not taking away from the fact that there's terrible persecutions all over through different manners, but those are not necessarily what Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, he says, for my sake. And Jesus, in verse 12 here, he gives us some more clarity. We'll go into that. He says, because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's kind of given us a little bit of a clue as to the, the types of persecution that he's speaking of. And we're going to check it out. We're going to check it out. If he says, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets, then we're going to look at, hey, how did they persecute the prophets? So in your books, in your Bibles, 
uh, we're going we're gonna to crack it open and we're going to see what's inside. Prophets, of course, you got a bunch of them in your Bible. you got the Jeremiah's and the Isaiah's and the Ezekiel's, the Daniel's. you got the, you got the Jonah's and the Hosea's and the guys with the crazy names like Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Malachi, Zephaniah, Zechariah, like all these different guys. And, and uh, those are the prophets. And it's not going to take long when we look at those prophetic books. It's not going to take long before we really start to see almost immediately what Jesus is talking about being persecuted like the prophets were. Because something that becomes very clear uh, immediately when you read those books is that the prophets, it's kind of a shocker, but the prophets weren't very popular. <laughs> they were not very popular. They were not the cool kids, right? They just, they just weren't. They were not really liked. They were not really uh, esteemed very highly uh, a lot of times by the people. In fact, a lot of times prophets like Ezekiel or Jeremiah, they were kind of seen as more of like an oddity. They were seen as like something that you like go and check out, like a, like a strange like novelty or something. You're like, what's Ezekiel doing today, that weirdo? Oh man, yeah, man, that Ezekiel, oh, he's so weird. But they'd roll their eyes at them. They were like tolerated sometimes at best, but persecuted sometimes at worst. And the thing was that God was sending these prophets with his word to the people. So God would equip these prophets with the word of God to go to the people, and the people were very ambivalent. They were kind of like, whatever. <laughs> like, they'd listen to the word, and they'd be like, ah, I don't think so. Because the prophets had what Paul would refer to centuries later in 2 Timothy in the New Testament. Paul referred to as having itchy ears. Itchy ears, meaning that they really had ears, and they had ears that wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. They weren't trying to hear truth if it was inconvenient to them. Amen? They weren't trying to hear truth if it kind of, you know, didn't go with what they already believed in anyway or what they were already doing anyway. They didn't want to hear anything that kind of came against what they already desired in their hearts. So they didn't have time for it. They didn't have time for it. So the prophets of the Lord, you'll see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophetic books, they're not listened to a lot of times. And what the people would do, the people actually, they would hunger after all kinds of prophetic words like by false prophets who would just speak great things to them. In fact, Isaiah talks about it here. Isaiah chapter 30, he mentions it. He's talking about the people here. He says, the people, they say to the seers, look, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Hey, tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Tell us things are awesome. Tell us, tell us about prosperity and wealth and, and, and all these great things. Tell us that we're, we're safe and everything is good and we're amazing the way that we are. We don't need to change nothing because we are doing so awesome. That's what we want to hear. That's what our ears are itching to hear. So these false prophets would show up on the scene and they, would just, they, would, they just knew that the people wanted to hear a certain thing. So, that, so these false prophets who were not prophets of the Lord, they were not speaking the word of the Lord, they would go to the people and tell them all what they wanted to hear. And these false prophets again and again would like actually get you know, a following, following them around and really respecting them and really liking these false prophets, not because they spoke the truth, but because they spoke a pretty sounding lie and that's what the people desired to hear itchy ears. I compare it to like going to a mechanic 
to get your car checked out. You ever had car problems? You ever been driving down the road and, and all of a sudden you start to like hear like a rattle or something, something weird going on, and it's not, it's not fixed by just turning up the volume on your stereo. Like sometimes we hope that's going to fix it. It doesn't get fixed by that, and you hear it a little bit more and a little bit more, and finally you're just like, ah, oh, I give up. I'll bring it to the mechanic. So you bring your car to the mechanic, and you're kind of like, oh, this is stressing me out, man. I don't want to hear about, you know, $3,000 worth of repairs or something. So you bring it into the mechanic, and the mechanic comes out, and, and he, actually, he actually surprises you. He goes and looks at your car, comes back right away. There's no waiting. He comes back right away. He takes a look at your car, comes right back, and comes to you, and he says, man, I got amazing news for you. I got great news. Your car's in great shape, the best shape. Your car's in the best great shape of any car ever, and, and your car's beautiful. And also, you look beautiful today. And also, this visit has been free. Isn't that awesome? Cool, man. And then you're like, whoa, I like this mechanic. And as you like high-five him on the way out, and you get in your car, and you're driving 80 miles an hour down the highway 15 minutes later, and you hit the brakes, and they fail, and you start to roll like this down the highway as your car is going head over heels, and you have a moment where time slows down, and you think to yourself, but he was such a nice guy. That's what it was like with the people and the prophets back in the prophetic times. They didn't want to hear what they needed to hear, right? If your brakes are bad on your car, you need to hear that the brakes are bad on your car. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear that everything was all right and amazing. That's what they got. That's what they got from false prophets who were just all too willing to tell them a pretty sounding lie. I'm not making that up. You'll see it recorded many times in the prophets of Scripture. We're going to pick it up here in First Kings 22. I'm going to set it up a little bit. Back then, Israel was like kind of, they, were, they, were, they, were kind of, they didn't have unity anymore. They kind of broke apart. The, the nation of Israel broke into two at that point, into two separate nations. There was the, the northern nation of Israel, and there was the southern nation of Judah. They had different nations, they had different capitals, they had different kings. And the two kings, the one in the north was named Ahab, and the one in the south was named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is not a name you hear about a lot these days. You don't hear like a lot of people like naming their children Jehoshaphat anymore, but that was this guy's name, the king of the south of the kingdom of Judah. His name was Jehoshaphat. You got these two kings, and even though they were split apart, there was two separate nations now, they came together because they had a common enemy one time, and they're like, hey, like, let's get together, let's combine forces, let's combine armies, and maybe go ahead and attack our, our, uh, our common enemy. So they get together and they start talking about this. They start talking about this. And one of the kings, the king of the, the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, says, hey, can we like check out you know, what the Lord has to say. Let's check the, the, the counsel of the Lord. So the king of the north, Ahab, comes and he says, listen, I got 400 prophets. Let's bring them in. And the prophets come in. They're not prophets of the Lord, but they're prophets. And they come in and they're saying all these amazing things, right? So the king say, hey, prophets, should we go and attack our enemies? Like, what's going to happen? And the prophets are like, yes, you should totally go and attack your enemies because the Lord is going to give your enemies into your hands. And 400 prophets are all saying this at once. They're all, they're all excitedly saying, yes, we are prophesying. We are feeling the spirit right now. And it's saying, go and receive your victory. Go and attack your enemies and you will be fine. You will rout your enemies. But Jehoshaphat's kind of like, uh, not so fast. I see all these prophets are saying this, but is there a prophet of the Lord left? And the king of Israel answers, you'll see it here, he answers like a child. He goes, 
there's still one prophet that we can inquire of the Lord, but uh, I hate him. <laughs> I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. Jehoshaphat's like, okay, well, bring him in. You know, go ahead and bring him in. So it goes on. His name is Micaiah, right? So they're, so they're going to bring in Micaiah. So as they go to get Micaiah, like one of the officials goes to get Micaiah, and they're bringing him back, and, and the scene is like this. The two kings are in this official room. They're both in their official thrones. The two kings are wearing their official kingly robes, like all in splendor. They're surrounded by these 400 prophets that are all prophesying, go and receive victory, and the Lord is with you, and yeah, go do your thing, and your enemy is going to be delivered into your hands. And one of those 400 prophets, even, he steps up and he, and he makes these, the, the Bible says he makes these iron horns. He shows up with these iron horns on the scene. And now he's using like sermon illustrations. And he's using these iron horns and he's saying, with these horns, with horns like these, you're going to gore your enemies. So go ahead and go attack them and you're going to be like a bull that's just goring your enemies kind of a thing. It's a, it's a real whole scene going on. And the official brings in, brings in uh, Micaiah. And as he's about to bring him in, he turns to Micaiah. He turns to Micaiah and he says, he says, go on. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah says to him, look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. It's kind of like, hint, hint, if you know what's good for you, hey, let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. Micaiah is about to enter into the room, and he says to this guy, he says to the official, hey, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. No matter what. No matter if it goes well for me, it doesn't go well for me, if it goes terribly for me, at that point, he had a decision to make whether he was going to stand up and say what the Lord said to him or whether he was going to fall in with what everybody else was falsely saying and just tell the king what he wanted to hear. And when he arrives, the king asks him, Hey, Micaiah, should we go to war against these guys or not? And I think Micaiah here, I really, I really believe that he says this, so I'm going to say it like this. I believe he says it sarcastically because in the scene, there's 400 guys that are all like, go, you're going to be victorious. And you got like the horns guy who's like, yeah, go, get him. And Micaiah goes, yeah, attack and be victorious. Goes on. Attack and be victorious for, for the Lord's going to give it into the king's hand. Yeah, yeah, what those guys are saying. And the king's like, how many times do I have to, just tell me, man, just tell me. I know it, I know that, I know, I know you got something to say, man. Just tell me. And Micaiah answers, he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. And you got to understand a little bit into the culture into a people that are about to go be led into war by their kings because kings went into battle with their people and led their people into war. What Micaiah is saying here and what the king of Israel, King Ahab of the north, understood he was saying was that when the sheep of Israel without a shepherd and they have no master and they go home in peace, Micaiah was saying that the Lord was saying that King Ahab was going to be killed if he went away to this battle. And the king of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you, man? Didn't I tell you this guy prophesies? He never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad. And the story ends with King Ahab throwing Micaiah into a dungeon 
and telling the official, only feed this guy bread and water until I come back safely. And as they're bringing Micaiah out of the room to bring him to the dungeon, he turns around and says to Ahab, if you come back safely, then the Lord didn't speak through me. And what happens? What do you think happens? Oh, they go to war. They go to battle against these people. And the two kings go out. King Jehoshaphat goes out in all of his royal attire as the king leading his army. And Ahab thinks he's going to be smart. And he thinks he's not going to dress as the king in his royal robes. He's like, Jehoshaphat, you're cool, man. You go ahead and do that. I'm going to dress like a common soldier so that people can't pick me out, so that this word can't come true. And he goes out into battle, dressed as a common soldier, and a common soldier's arrow from the other guys just comes randomly and clips him right in the chest and kills him. He tried to hide from the word of the Lord, but you can't. You can't. The Micaiah ended that story in prison, in the dungeon. Indefinitely? Who knows? And the funny thing about the truth, right? The truth, the Bible says that the truth would set you free. So the truth might set you free spiritually, but it might also get you in prison physically. And Micaiah and some of these other prophets knew that well. Persecution for God's sake. Persecution for God's sake. It turns out the prophets were persecuted for refusing to back down from the word of God even when it was difficult, even if it came at great personal cost. And the Bible is filled with stories about prophets who are mocked or put in jail or flogged or starved or beaten or killed, but they held steadfast to the word of God. In spite of the insults, in spite of the accusations, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. That's the meaning of what Jesus is talking about there. And when those prophets ended up in prison, it's funny because that's actually exactly what happened to the apostles when Jesus was, was uh, killed and then resurrected. When in, early, in the early church, in, when it was still in Jerusalem and, and Jesus had been killed and then the tomb was empty and then they saw him and, and they saw him ascend in power and they really believed and understood and they ran around the whole city and they're like, Jesus Christ is the king of heaven and earth. He's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And the chief leaders and the religious leaders, they killed him. But death couldn't hold down the author of life himself. And so he rose from the dead, and they go about Jerusalem, and they're speaking in the name of Jesus, and people are freaking out and believing them. And thousands of people are being added to the church in the Bible. In the Acts, it says daily in some instances. Daily. So the apostles are brought in by those same religious leaders that actually had Jesus killed. And they're brought in to be questioned by the high priest. And he says, hey, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this guy's name, the name of Jesus. He goes on, he says, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles, they reply to him, they say, listen, we must obey God rather than human beings. And they begin to use that moment in front of the council of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin, in front of that council of like intimidating people that have the power of life or death over you pretty much. In that moment, they say, 
We must obey God rather than human beings, so we're going to continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And they start talking about this Jesus that you guys killed. He really was the Messiah, and you guys killed him, but now he's risen from the dead. They're preaching the gospel to these guys after they just told them to stop. And they're furious. You see it here. Verse number 33, they're furious. When they hear about this, they're furious, and they want to put the apostles to death. They're about to be persecuted for real for Jesus' sake. They're furious, and they want to put them to death, but they're kind of scared of the people at the same time because all of Jerusalem is in an uproar of this Jesus character, and if they kill off the apostles right after Jesus was killed, they might have riots up on their hands. It might be worse for them. So they're furious. They want to put them to death, but after they send the apostles out of the room and they discuss what they're going to do to them, and death is on the table, they bring them back in. It says verse 40, I believe. Yeah, 40. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. Instead, they had them beaten. Then they ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let him go. And the apostles left that council, that Sanhedrin, those religious leaders, and they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What an awesome, awesome attitude to have. It's a challenge, too, because I don't know that even me, if I was in that situation, I would be like, man, I'm pretty scared for my life right now. I'm pretty scared I'm going to lose everything. And these guys are like, whatever. And they're partying. They're like dancing on the way. They're like high-fiving each other. This is great. Yeah, you see this? Like I got big old scars on my back because of Jesus, because Jesus considered me worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. They're like, yes. Let me ask you a question. How do you defeat an enemy? That the more that you beat them, the more joyful that they are. How do you defeat an enemy like that? The more you yell at them, the more you persecute them, the more that you lie about them, the more violence that you use, the more you try to stamp out the fire in your own house, the more that fire spreads through the neighborhood, burns down all your neighbor's houses, then comes back again at you. That's how the early church spread over the entire world. It started tiny. And they started to try and stamp it out and stamp it out and stamp it out. And it just scattered the flames throughout all the whole area and beyond and to the ends of the earth where we see it today all over the place. You can't beat somebody. You can't beat an enemy like that. You can't. And that's how God has created his kingdom. That the gates of hell could never, ever, ever prevail against his kingdom because persecution only makes it stronger. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that awesome? They rejoiced. They rejoiced. So cool. Stuff like that happens this day, to this day, in countries all over the world. You want to talk about being put in jail or being killed, like for, for the name of Jesus, like that still happens, just not really here in America. It happens in China, right? You can't even like, you can't even really meet in a church building like this in China. You can't, unless it has strict communist government approval, which means that it's not really a church that's like Jesus is really worshipped in there. It's like the warm and fuzzies of like religion and family values and stuff is allowed, kind of. But the ultimate, like, Jesus is there, but Jesus, the picture of Jesus in a church like that is like Jesus is like bowing down and worshiping the communist government. That's pretty much how it is. So if you are actually trying to have like a worship of the real Jesus and you're actually trying to, trying, to, trying to be a real Christian, you can't meet like this. You have to meet in underground little like houses. And there's always like the threat of spies that are around that they're, they're going to find out about your meeting. They're going to come sit in and see what you guys are doing. And if you guys are praying in the name of Jesus or you're singing to Jesus or whatever, it's like, boom, we're going to imprison these guys, kick down the door, arrest the whole family, mess up your whole life. That's just China. 
You get caught being a Christian in like places in Egypt or Afghanistan or Somalia. You're not even talking about like the nice, like, hey, a spy came in and they kicked down the door and they did whatever. You're talking about like massive riots in your neighborhood. People, people coming to your door, trying to break down your door by force and just come in and just kill you without a trial because you have blasphemed. You've created the, un, you've made the unpardonable sin by not worshiping whatever God that they worship. You picked out Jesus Christ and that cannot stand in their neighborhoods and their opinion. We don't see that stuff in the USA. And you might be of the opinion that, that we are maybe persecuted in some regards. And I might, honestly, I might agree with you on some things for sure. I think, I think there are like persecutions that do happen. I, I do, I do. Especially like, you know, even on a, on a personal level or something, like you, you're a Christian and you're outspoken and your boss like passes you over for a promotion. Or your coworkers, or your teammates, or your fellow classmates, or your teachers, or, or whatever that is, or maybe a family member straight up disowns you because they just don't got any kind of room for that Jesus religious nonsense. So I do believe that persecutions do happen. And maybe they're a little bit more organized than some things maybe in this country, maybe. But nobody's going to say that we have it as bad as the persecutions of the church in like North Korea or someplace, right? Nobody's going to argue me with that at that point. And that's not to say that maybe things couldn't change here, and they could. I think that they could, and, and maybe they could change quickly. I don't know. But one thing is for sure is that the American church has, I'm sorry, the American culture has shifted away from the church. Why do I feel like that sounds controversial when it actually is not? It is not. And all the data and all the, all the surveys and all the, all the different polls, they just totally back this up. America is no longer majority culturally Christian. Like in like some years in the 50s and the 60s, you know how what percentage of people identified as either Christian or Catholic? Combined, it was like 95% of the entire population identified as a Christian or a Catholic. When 95% of your population, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people, we're talking a lot of people, when they all identify as, as, as belonging to the church, right? In general, the church. That means that the church has a very powerful, very powerful influence in the center of the society there. And it did. For years, the culture kind of revolved around the church, going to church on Sundays and doing what the church, and, and the church was very, very, very powerful. Once upon a time, the church, or the idea of church at least, was more or less the center of American life, influencing and shaping society, sometimes for the good, Let's be honest, sometimes maybe not for the good because, you know, Christians aren't always great at living up to the standard to which we're called. But nowadays, modern America has become what's called a post-Christian culture. That's an actual term. You can look it up. Post-Christian culture. Churches, by and large, have seen a steep decline in attendance in the last 20-plus years. Did you know in the last four years, or at least between 2015 and 2019, 10% of people who identified as Christians walked away from being Christians. 10%. That's a huge dip in the number of people who consider themselves Christians. In 2015, it was up here, and 20, by the time 2019 came around, four years later, 10% of whoever called themselves a Christian in 2015 was no longer calling themselves a Christian in 2019. 10%! That's crazy. That's a crazy drop. That does not happen. Look at it. Look at, the, look, at the, look at the influence of the church in American culture. It has waned, right? It has absolutely waned. And I'm not sitting here boo-hoo, like, feel sorry for us, the American church. People don't love us anymore or whatever. That's not actually what this is about. I'm just talking facts. American culture has shifted away from the church. 
It's been, it's lost its central role in society and it's kind of been, well, it's kind of been pushed towards the margins of culture. We're not all the way at the margins, at the outer ends, the fringes, but we've been pushed out of the center for sure and towards the margins. And, and, I, and I think a lot of people would agree with me on that. I think the numbers and the trends make it pretty clear. And I do think maybe it's a little bit sad for sure, but I also don't think it's all bad news. Because if, as we're pushed to the margins more and more, if we're pushed to the margins, the church is pushed to the margins, who loves to hang out on the margins? Who loves to hang out on the fringes of society? Jesus. Jesus hangs out on the margins. If we're pushed to the margins, that's where Jesus likes to hang out in the first place. Who hangs out on the margins of society better than Jesus does? The guy was, the guy was chilling with prostitutes. Non-sexually. The guy was chilling with tax collectors and lepers and, and all kinds of just the outcasts of society and people that society wanted nothing to do with. The religious people of that day, of Jesus' day, they wouldn't even walk on the same side of the road as some of those people. And Jesus beelined for those people, bypassing the religious guys who like had their noses up and thought they were like too good to even look down at those scumbags over there. And Jesus was like, excuse me, I'm going to go over here and hang out with this guy you just called a scumbag. Jesus lived life on the margins. Jesus' home. He made his home on the fringes. And if the margins are where Jesus spends his time, then maybe it's not such a bad place for the church to be. And maybe, just maybe, I'm going to make a couple enemies here probably if I haven't already, but maybe, just maybe, the church that once upon a time found itself at the center of the culture here in America, maybe that church got a little too comfortable, and I'm just going to say it. Maybe we got a little bit too complacent. Maybe we lost focus of the message and the mission of Jesus. Maybe we got a little bit lazy. Too focused on ourselves. Maybe the church became more concerned with the Christian culture rather than the Christian Christ. We had all kinds of issues. There's, listen, I will tell you one place that there's plenty of persecutions of the church in the United States of America. Let me just tell you right now. It's not coming from outside the church. It's coming from inside the church and people are persecuting each other constantly. Constantly. Churches can sometimes be more focused on the Christian culture than on the Christian Christ. And I think you can see that illustrated in the fact that the American church for a long time now has seemed more persecuted by each other inside the church but than by anybody outside over minor and some would say relatively important issues like the length of a man's hair, whether women can wear pants, whether you can wear shorts to church on a Sunday. I know, riveting, right? But people are freaked out about those issues. Uh, whether, whether the Bible can only be read by a certain translation, it's got to be King James only because those other ones aren't inspired. It's got to be King James only. You got to say thee, thou, thine, thost. What if you speak Spanish, right? Like, can you read that translation? You can't. Is that thought through? I don't know. Uh, what about, what about people with tattoos? What about, what, about, what about the songs that I like? Can't you play the old songs, man? Can't you just bring back the old hymns? Can't you play the new songs? Why do we got to play these other songs? We want to play the new songs. Can't you just pick any other song? I don't like any of these songs. People fighting over all that stuff all the time, arguing, infighting about the placement of the cross or the Christian flag or the American flag or the drum kit or the pulpit or the piano. 
People got disagreements about instruments in church. There's, a, there's, there's certain churches in this country that think that you, having an instrument in church during worship time is actually like demonic, that instruments are actually like a tool of the devil, so there's no instruments allowed in their churches. And I actually know, I actually know of people, this is a true story I'm going to tell. I actually know of a church that was like that. They believe that musical instruments are, are tools of the devil, so, so worship has to be singing only, right? Just singing. And I know of them, and then they met another group, another church that believed the same thing. They're like, oh my gosh, finally somebody. So, so these two churches that both believed that instruments should not be allowed in church during worship, that it should only be vocals, they're like, this is great. Let's get our youth groups together, and we can have a worship service, and this can actually be a real worship to the Lord. So the two youth groups get together. They're like, this is going to be awesome. The, 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 the singers get up on stage. All the, the kids and the leaders are all down there. They're ready to go. And as they start to sing the first song, it becomes incredibly clear that there's a problem. And they have to split and stop hanging out with each other, and they cannot continue the worship service anymore. You know what it was? It was that one of those church groups that doesn't believe in musical instruments and believes in only singing. Well, turns out they believe in clapping. And the other church group that believed in just singing and no instruments believed that clapping was actually an instrument and therefore that was a tool of the devil during their worship time. So they had to stop and they had to split up and they had to be like, you're not a real Christian because you guys clap and you guys are you know, persecuting us for clapping, but you're the real ones that are not real Christians. It gets ridiculous. It gets ridiculous. We can't be here if there's going to be clapping. Are you kidding me? These, to me, are the hallmarks of a church that's gotten too comfortable. They got really nothing external to worry about, so they start nitpicking amongst each other and turn minor disagreements into big old fights and name-calling, and you're not a real Christian if you don't QRS, T, V, W, X, Y, and Z. But I think that Jesus would say that that stuff... Some of that stuff is like straining the gnat while you swallow the camel. And if you've never heard that analogy before, like, I know that sounds weird right now, <laughs> but straining a gnat and swallowing a camel means like you're super hyper-focused on this like tiny little things that maybe don't matter so much in the real scheme of things, but you're choking on the fact that you were called to love those people in the first place, but instead you want to tell them they're not Christians and they're awful people and they're terrible, you know, worshipers of God because they clap their hands or they have long hair or they wear pants in church or whatever that it might be. Straining the gnat, but swallowing the camel. And maybe, maybe the American church being dethroned from that central place of honor in society and culture, maybe, maybe it will help us to rediscover our purpose a little bit. To look outside ourselves again. To get the plank out of our eye when we look at our brothers and sisters a little bit and remember, hey, Oh, this is how Jesus wants us to see. Wants us to get our eyes off of ourselves. Wants us to get our eyes on those who are lost and who need him. Maybe we can look outside ourselves again and take up the call of Jesus. We can be missionaries for Jesus to the new godless culture that we find ourselves in. But to do that, we have to be willing to listen to his voice. Willing to listen to his voice. And I guess I wonder aloud if we in the church here in America aren't at times in danger of being like those hearers of the word from prophetic times. Itchy ears, remember? We want to hear what we, have to, we want to hear. We want to hear. 
Some of those people used to say they wanted the word of the Lord, but in reality, they really just wanted somebody to agree with their already formed opinions. To be honest, I think we do see that today in the American church. They saw it in prophetic times in the Old Testament. Paul saw it in the New Testament. He says right here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's talking to a pastor. He's talking to Timothy. He says, hey, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine anymore. They're not going to want teaching, man. They don't want to hear what the, te- what the Bible says. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to hear. They're going to turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, lies, whatever, as long as it sounds pretty. I think if we see that in the Old Testament and we see that in the New Testament with Paul, I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say that we see it nowadays too. Hate me if you will, I'm sorry. But I, I, think, it, I think it can happen. People have itchy ears and let's be, let's be straight. Like, let's be straight. Like, let's just take off any, any like falsehood or false pretenses. Like, let's, let's be straight. Like, we see, we see all around us that some pastors and leaders, some pastors and leaders, have used the knowledge that people have itchy ears. They've used that knowledge to their financial benefits. And they've happily told these people what they wanted to hear and what their ears were itching for. And as they told them what they wanted to hear, they watched the checks rolling in more and more and their churches growing. And it was awesome for them because they had it on lock what the people were clamoring for. So they were just spitting out generalities and God wants you to be a millionaire and God wants you to have an $8,000 suit and golden cufflinks and plastic surgery or God wants you to have a Ferrari and a private jet and a private island. God wants you to have $3,000 Yeezy sneakers and an $800 t-shirt with pre-made holes in it. God wants you to be rich and blessed and prosperous and sow a $1,000 seeds or reap a million dollar harvest. And people want to hear that. Sometimes we want to hear that God wants us rich and God wants us powerful and God wants us happy and God wants us blessed and God wants us comfortable and God wants us safe and God wants us rich and happy and comfortable and safe and prosperous and rich and happy and comfortable and safe and prosperous. But that just kind of forgets about the fact that God does not care. If you're materially comfortable, I don't mean like if you're, if you're homeless that God doesn't care that you're homeless or if you're hungry that God doesn't care if you're hungry. No. I don't mean that at all. There's a comfort that comes to our detriment sometimes. A comfort that brings complacency. That brings laziness. Jesus is not looking for a comfortable church. He's looking for an obedient church. Our walk with God is actually supposed to be distinctly uncomfortable. And that's what you don't get a lot of times from, from these, some of these leaders and pastors when they're talking about all these blessings and blessings and sowing million-dollar seeds and whatever. You don't get that part. 
But Jesus, Jesus made no mistake and he minced no words. And the bone I have to pick here isn't about wealth itself or judging people, like if they're a Christian and they have a nice car. It's not about that. That's not about that at all. That's about churches and pastors telling people what they want to hear rather than telling them what they need to hear. If your car's brakes are bad, the mechanic should tell you, right? Shouldn't tell you that everything's good and great and awesome and you're amazing and you're going to be blessed and that car's going to bless you because it's beautiful and all these things. You need the truth. Sometimes you need the truth even if it hurts. We need to be willing to stand up and speak the truth even if it hurts, even if it costs. And we need to be willing to stand up and listen to the truth, even if it's not convenient, even if it goes against our thoughts and our opinions, even if it hurts. Jesus is not looking for a comfortable church. He's looking for an obedient church. Let's read one of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. Let's, let's, let's read it. Matthew 16 is Jesus himself saying it. And Jesus is saying, hey, whoever wants to be my disciple... Who's that? Who do you think he's talking to? Well, he's talking to whoever wants to be his disciple. <laughs> so he says, you must deny yourself. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. So uncomfortable. Right? We live in this society, this age of like instant gratification. You're saying deny myself? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Wait a minute. I don't like where this is going, Jesus. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What? Or whoever, wants, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. Where are you leading me, Jesus? Is it safe? Is it safe over there where we're going, Jesus? Where are you leading me? Is it comfortable over there where we're going, Jesus? Are they playing my kind of church songs over there where we're going, Jesus? Jesus, where's the drum kit over there where we're going, Jesus? Are they clapping in church or are they just singing, Jesus? Jesus, 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 is it my kind of kingdom? Is it going to be for me? Is it what I want? Is it what I desire? Are the people that I like, are they going to be there, Jesus? Are the people that I dislike going to be there, Jesus? Jesus, where are we going with this cross, Jesus? Why am I following you? Where are you going? Well, we know the answer where he was going. You know where he's going with that cross. You know what's there. The cross, the nails, the crucifixion. That's what he's talking about here. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Where is he going with his cross, man? He was going to his death. That way over there with Jesus... That way lies death of self. Life with Jesus, yes, but death of self. Whoever wants to save, whoever wants to keep their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You don't get that a lot. You don't get that truth a lot. We don't. I don't. I've heard it before, but not a lot because it's difficult. 
as distinctly uncomfortable. It's not safe. Well, following God is not always safe. Ask all these other believers in all these other countries. You think they're worried about Ferraris and private islands and private jets? They're not. They're worried about living till tomorrow and maybe hopefully getting out of prison someday, seeing their families again. Following God is not always safe, and it's definitely not always supposed to be comfortable. Man. C.S. Lewis wrote the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and I, I read them like a long time ago. I've seen a couple of the movies or whatever, but it's very famous, very famous. Uh, he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. People still read it today, and, it's, and it takes place in this land called Narnia. The king of Narnia is Aslan, Aslan the lion, and it's a thinly veiled reference to Jesus. Like everybody knows, that lion, the king in Narnia, that's a, that's a reference to Jesus, right? So in the story, one of the characters named Mr. Beaver is going to bring this girl to go meet Aslan for the first time. And he tells her, Aslan is a lion, the lion, a great lion, the great lion. And oh, says Susan, says the little girl, oh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is your king, my brother and sister. He's our king. And he's good but not always comfortable and definitely not always safe. Are you willing to follow him today? Are you willing to listen to him even if it costs? Even if it costs you your own desires, your own opinions, your own plans, even down to the way that you identify. If it costs you your identity, are you willing to follow him at all costs? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Deny themselves. Even if it costs your comfort and your safety, will you follow him today? Lord, I, I just... Lord, I just worship you, God, in this place, in this time. <laughs> Lord, I'm an imperfect person, God, and I've done my best, God, to, to, to try to be faithful with, with your word today, Lord. And I just pray that you bless it, Lord, that you, that you bless it and you use it, Lord. And anything that was of me, Lord, that, that wasn't of you, Lord, that you would just cause that to fall away, Lord God, because I believe your heart, Lord, your heart is for your people. And I tried, to, I tried to, to bring that to bear today, Lord God, that your heart is for your people to be abandoned unto themselves for your sake, Lord. Lord, that we'd be willing to put down anything and everything that gets in the way of you, Jesus. Even if it's 
something that we distinctly don't like or don't want to hear, Jesus, we give it to you, Lord. Help us to receive it, Lord. Help us to, to, to receive your ways and your word, Lord. Help us to deny ourselves, Lord God, and pick up our cross and follow you and be, and be with you over there, over there on that hill where you've called us to be, Lord, where life eternal is in the spirit. But sometimes, well, sometimes where there's death in the flesh, Lord Jesus, help us to, to put down help us to put down our identities and our opinions, Lord. Lord Jesus, I go so far, far, Lord, as to say, God, that your will be done, Lord, in this election in November, God. Your will be done, Lord God, that God, I give up my opinion on who, on who I think is a good guy or a bad guy or who, if they're both bad guys or whatever, Lord. I give it to you, Lord. I ask you, God, that you, Lord, would reign and have your way through whoever wins, Lord God. I give up my identity and my opinion before you, Lord Jesus, and I just ask you, Lord, to lead me, Lord, to lead us, Lord, that we'd be willing to give up unto everything, Lord, and be before you and say, God, your will be done. Not ours, but your will be done. Thank you this morning, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Your will be done. Amen.